words I speak and the words we hear be your words of life to us, our God. Amen. There's a lot we could focus on this Sunday. In the church's calendar, yesterday was a big day. It was the Feast of the Transfiguration, so we could have done that today, and so this is a picture of the Transfiguration. A day where we remember the story of Jesus being transfigured, lost in the light of God. Yesterday was also Hiroshima Day, a day when the world remembers the bombing of Hiroshima in 1945 and Nagasaki three days later. A day where we remember the horror of nuclear weapons and where we are invited to pray for a world without them. I find it sad that on the day where we remember Jesus being transfigured and consumed in the light of God, we also remember 150,000 people who were instantly consumed in the ferocious and violent light created by us humans and unleashed by only two bombs. And they were small in comparison to what is available today. And so, because yesterday was Hiroshima Day, today is Peace Sunday, a day where we are invited to pause and to pray for peace around the world, to recognise how we contribute to the lack of peace here in this land and in so many places, but also to give thanks for those who risk their own lives trying to bring peace, restore peace, or keep peace. A day where we can give thanks for the many people who work tirelessly with the many millions of people displaced by war, by the lack of peace. And where we can give thanks for those who work tirelessly to create a world where war is not needed. So this day where we remember that consuming life of God is now wrapped in a deadly cloak of war. To be honest, it has been since the date the 6th of August was set. The date the 6th of August was set by Pope Callistus in 1546, six years after the fall of Constantinople to the Ottoman Turks. The Ottoman Turks were not satisfied with controlling all of the Middle East and Turkey and continued on into Europe. And on or around the 6th of August, 1650, 1456, they were defeated by a European Christian force. And when news came to Rome of that victory, the Pope ordered the whole church to commemorate the victory by celebrating the Feast of the Transfiguration. A feast about life had become a commemoration of slaughter. It is hard to keep hold of of Christ, the Prince of Peace, in the face of such violence. Well, with all of that in mind, let's look at today's Gospel reading. And I have a couple of comments that I want to make about it. A couple of thoughts to start with then. The first is that this week's reading uh, is a continuation of what we heard last week. I'm not sure what Laurie was doing, but she didn't change the Gospel. So the Gospel in your pew sheet, for those of you who are awake, is exactly the same as the Gospel last week. 
So uh, that was beautifully marked by Marion in the Bible, but not the right, not the right reading at all. Um, and but that's the beginning. Last week's reading is the beginning of uh, of what we heard today. And there's a little bit in between. So for those who can't remember what the gospel reading last week was, it was about the foolish, the rich, foolish barn guy. A story uh, Jesus tells uh, in response to a very greedy person who asks a crazy and dishonourable question, or a request really, uh, wanting Jesus to order his brother to divide his family property with him. And as I said last week, that was a request that would have been unheard of. It's not unheard of today, but it would have been unheard of in those times because such a request made the viability of that land, put it at risk, and put at risk the family holding on to that land. But more than that, it also, if that land is lost to the family, had dire consequences for the community of people that lived around that land and relied on that land for their own food, for their own income. And I said that that story is a reminder that greed is never just about me and my moral well-being. That greed always affects the community in which we live in. The verses between what we heard last week and what we just heard now, uh, Jesus talking about that parable. And he talks about, uh, look at the birds as I began to read. Uh, they're not anxious about what they eat. They're not anxious about what they wear. And yet your Father in heaven looks after them. So therefore you do not need to be anxious. It's important that we read what I just read from the Gospel this week in relation to all that goes before it. It is a continuation of that. It is not a separate little piece. So I invite you to go home and to read from the beginning of chapter 12, from verse 13, and to see how all this holds together. Last week I also talked about how where we stand affects how we read the Bible. And I used the example of being on Savo, where that little volcanic island an hour and a half out of Honiara in the, in the um, Solomon Islands, uh, where people have enough, um, but they don't really have more than enough. And uh, how I was aware with that last week's Gospel reading that I was by far the richest person in that church. I was the rich person. And so while I might read last week's Gospel reading and talk about how well, you know, we don't need to accumulate lots of goods and we don't need to be consumerist and we don't need to be greedy. Most of those issues are just not on the table for the people of Savo. They are never going to have too many goods because they simply don't have the resources to accumulate too many, too many goods. They're not part of a consumerist society. So what that Bible reading says to me and what it said to them is an entirely different thing. Where we stand affects how we read Scripture. And this week I want to push that a little bit and suggest that an important part of where we stand is our theology. Now we often think that our theology is shaped by how we read the Bible. Evangelicals will tell me that my theology is faulty because I don't read the Bible. But in fact, our theology also determines how we read the Bible. I bring a certain set of 
assumptions and understandings about what the Bible is saying. And when I read the Bible, I read the Bible in light of that. And the Bible passages will either challenge those assumptions or will affirm those assumptions. And that's true also of the translators. So it's a two-way thing. When we read the Bible, we bring our theology and it shapes what we read, and then what we read in the Bible challenges our theology. So it should be an ongoing conversation. It's not the Bible just shapes my theology. And that's just as true of the translators. No translation is just a word-for-word match. When you're translating out of Hebrew, or out of which I know nothing about, Bonnie wouldn't let me do it, and that's quite a good thing, because I had a friend who did a year of Hebrew, and uh, he did that and got good marks, and a year later he found his Hebrew notes, and he stared at them for quite a while, wondering what all those strange marks in the paper were, and then he went, oh, those are my Hebrew notes, and then he had another look and went, and I have no idea what they're about. So that was a waste of a year. Uh, so I didn't do Hebrew, but Greek I did do. And the reality is, in both of those languages, the grammar doesn't exactly match what we have in English. Uh, we have less tenses than they do in Greek. I don't, I don't know about Hebrew. Uh, and the words don't match word for word. So they have words for things that we don't have words for. We have words for things they don't have words for and so on. And so when the translators are trying to translate, they are constantly trying to work out what does this mean and how can I best put this in our case English. And part of that is shaped by their theology, by what they think the whole of the Bible is about and what some of the big concepts are, like in today's reading, the kingdom. So we can see that in a small scale at work on the passage that we heard this morning. So I'm just going to run through some of the translations and how they translated that first verse. So I knew that I was reading the wrong piece because the first verse was all wrong. So the CEV, the um, Contemporary English Version, translate that first verse as, My little group of disciples, don't be afraid. Your Father wants to give you the kingdom. Now that's in the future tense. That says, God wants to do this, it hasn't happened yet, but sometime in the future, you will be given the kingdom. That's very different from the New Revised Standard and all the translations that follow the lineage of the King James Version. So what lines of Bible translators do is they'll go back to their first one and they will modify how that first translation was translated on the basis of um, newer, older, uh, older scrolls that have been found and on scholarship that's kind of worked out what the Greek might be meaning, for example. And so if you go back to the King James Version, and if you read the New Revised Standard Version, actually the translation of this line is pretty similar. And in the New Revised Standard Version, the Revised Standard Version, and the English Standard Version, etc., etc., they translate this line as, Do not be afraid, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom, which is in the present tense. And it's kind of, well, it could be happening now, but it also has a future element to it. And we'll talk about about that in a minute. Now that's different, again, from the New Jerusalem Bible, which is the Catholic English Bible, and the New International Version, the NIV. They translate it as, There is no need to be afraid, little flock, for it has 
pleased your Father to give you the kingdom. Past tense, perfect tense, done. Past, done, complete. The kingdom is ours. Not going to happen maybe now, maybe in the future. Not going to happen in the future. It's happened. It's already done. Don't need to worry about it. Now, I don't know why the translators translated that into three different tenses. I suspect that some of that uh, is related to what happens afterwards when Jesus tells some stories about uh, the bridegroom coming home and the thief coming back into the house. So they're trying to kind of link it in with that. And I suspect that some of it also has something to do with their understanding of what the kingdom is and when it will happen. The Greek verb is actually in the perfect tense, which is what the New Jerusalem and the NIV have translated it as. There is no need to be afraid, little flock, for it has pleased your Father to give you the kingdom. That tense implies, well, it doesn't imply, it states that the giving of the kingdom has already happened. That we are in the kingdom. So don't be afraid. You're in. And it implies that there is nothing we can do to change that. We're in. And the kingdom is happening all around us. Now, if that's how we kind of take hold of that, the verses around that idea then become how we might live in the kingdom. And whether we live up to what follows will not change the fact that we are in the kingdom and the kingdom is already happening around us. And that has a very different sense to it from the CEV where your father wants to give you the kingdom in the future. The father wants to give it. But there are questions around that, aren't there? Like, and that changes how we read the following verses. Like, well, they suddenly become, maybe, things that I need to do to measure up to, so that the father continues to be pleased to give me the kingdom. To make sure that the father gives me the kingdom. And because while well, the Father might be pleased to give me the kingdom, if I don't measure up, if I don't do the things that follow, then I could very well miss out on the kingdom. Now I'm sure that some of you are thinking, well, that's kind of picking John. You know, tenses, does it really matter? But I think it does. Because I know a lot of Christians for whom that is exactly the issue. People from here who have talked to me about this very issue. They're worried that they're not good enough. That they're letting God down by what they do and they don't do. That their faith is not strong enough. That their actions aren't Christian enough. That their actions will not please God. And because... All of this is in the future tense. They might not get into the kingdom. But actually the Greek is in the perfect tense. Our Father has been pleased to give us the kingdom. And there's nothing we can do to change that. Except say, 
No thanks, I don't want to go in. I think this is a really important verse. I'm not very big on memory verses, so I don't get excited when people say you should remember all these verses. I think Bible should be read as a whole, book should be read as a whole, I don't think we should pluck verses out and use them like Proverbs. But if you're going to have a memory verse, I would say this is one of them. There is no need to be afraid. There is no need to be anxious. There is no need to be worried. For it has pleased your Father to give you the kingdom. It doesn't matter how good we are. It doesn't matter whether we measure up. Actually, we won't. I mean, let's not worry about that. Let's just be honest. We're not going to measure up. We're never going to be good enough. It's never going to be good enough. So don't worry. Because our Father has been pleased to give us the kingdom. So let's just pause for a moment and kind of let that sink in. That we don't need to be anxious. The second thing that comes out of this is, so what is the kingdom? Now, you have heard me talk a lot about what I think the kingdom of God is. I've had four and a half years of talking about the kingdom. So you don't need another sermon from me about that. If you haven't got what I think about this by now, another 20-minute sermon from me, not that I would inflict that on you at this point, Uh, It's not going to make any difference. But what is the really important thing is what you think the kingdom is and when it happens. Because that's kind of at the heart of what it's all about. What is the kingdom? What is it that God has been pleased to give us? So I'm going to give you a minute or two to talk to your neighbour. I know that's not a very 8 o'clock thing to do, but I'm going to risk it. And for you to tell each other, what is the kingdom? What is the kingdom for you? I'm sure there are a variety of ideas about what the kingdom are in this room. And, uh, and that's fine. The important thing is to have conversations about those talk about that because whether we like it or not our understanding of the kingdom shapes everything shapes how we read scripture it shapes what we think our lives are about and how we live our lives and it shapes our response to the events that we remember today whatever it is keep talking about it and keep hold of that opening line there is no need to be afraid for it has pleased your father to give you the kingdom. The kingdom is ours. We're in. We just need to live it.